Exodus chapter 3 is probably one of the most pivotal moments in the Old Testament. It is where Moses is exiled in the desert and the Lord appears to him in a burning bush. And it's in that encounter that God reveals his name to Moses. He tells Moses, I am. I am. And it's that pivotal moment in redemptive history where we begin to learn that God is and that God is coming to redeem his people. He's going to lead them out of exile into a new life. He tells Moses, I am. Well, what does that mean? That means God is saying, I am the eternal one. I am the unchanging one. I am the self-existent one. I am infinite. I am glorious in every way. I am above and beyond all things. I am God. And the reason that that is so significant is because Jesus himself picks up that theme in the Gospel of John. There's eight times in the Gospel of John when Jesus applies those same words, I am, to himself. And when he does so, make no doubt about it, Jesus was claiming to be God in the flesh. Not a helper to God, not a good teacher, but the divine, eternal, preexistent, infinite, perfect God of the universe made flesh. Jesus said, I am. And we see that in uh, John chapter 8, verse 58, when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And in case you're wondering how the people of that day heard that statement when Jesus said, I am, well, the Jews in chapter 8, verse 59, they go to kill him because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. But see, inside the Gospel of John, there are more I am statements. In fact, there are seven I am statements that Jesus uses to reveal more about who he is and what he offers us as we believe and follow him. So in this series, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at those seven I am statements so that we can learn more about who Jesus is. We can learn more about what Jesus offers us. The goal of this series is at the end of these six weeks, looking at these seven statements, that we will be able to more clearly and more fully see Jesus. Well, let's jump right in, because the first I am statement we're going to look at comes really at the height of Jesus's public popularity. Jesus has just, uh, in John chapter 5, performed a very public healing on a Sabbath, right? This, this got a lot of attention. He, in explaining himself for performing that miracle, claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed that he had authority to judge as well as power over life and death. He went so far as to say in John chapter 5 that believing on him was the only hope that anyone had for eternal life. And in that healing and in those statements, Jesus caused a stir in Israel. And he got people's attention. They heard his words. They saw his miracles. And so people, many people, began following him. All of this culminated in the feeding of the 5,000, one of Jesus' most famous miracles, where he takes some bread and some fish and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And it becomes something that just really gets him a ton of attention. And this massive group of people continue to follow him from place to place. 
Well, after feeding the 5,000, those disciples who were with Jesus get in a boat to head, across to, the, to head across the Sea of Galilee to go to Peter's hometown of Capernaum, and they leave Jesus behind to spend some time alone with the Father. But in the middle of the night, as they're crossing the sea, the disciples get caught in a storm, and we see Jesus come to them, walking on the sea and leading them safely to the other side, so that now Jesus and the disciples are in Capernaum. The reason I tell you all of that is because immediately on the heels of this popularity, immediately on the heels of feeding the 5,000, immediately on the heels of escaping to Capernaum, we, are, we see the first I am statement in John's gospel, and that is in John chapter 6. And what we're going to do is we're going to start reading in verse 22, where the crowd has said, hey, where did Jesus go? They find him in Capernaum. They find him in the synagogue at Capernaum, and they ask him, say, Jesus, where did you go? How did you get here? And he starts the answer in John chapter 6, verse 22. It says, Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Well, what then can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may believe you, they said. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it's written, he gave them bread to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, Sir, give us that bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So that is the first I am statement we see in John's gospel. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Well, I think to get the significance of what Jesus is trying to show us about us and himself here in those words, we need to kind of remember the context that it happened, right? Like all of these people who were following Jesus because of his popularity uh, and then followed him to the feeding of the 5,000 have now followed him to Capernaum. And they said, hey, where did you go? We lost you for a second. And Jesus tells them, hey, look, the reason you're looking for me, the reason you're here in Capernaum right now is because you got your bellies full. You ate the loaves and the fish that I multiplied, but he says you missed the significance behind it. That's what he says there, right, in verse 22, uh, or verse 26, when he says, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. And so that's kind of a weird statement, right? How could they eat the loaves if they didn't see the miracle? No, no, they saw the miracle, they ate the loaves, they missed the point. They missed the significance of that miracle. In that miracle, Jesus was telling them who he was, the Son of God, God in the flesh, able to meet all of their needs. And yet now, as we just read, they're going to go on to challenge Jesus to do more signs so that they might believe on him. Right? He says, well, you know, do more signs so that we can believe uh, that you are who you say you are. In fact, Moses did signs. He gave us manna. 
But really what they were doing there, right, it's easy to see. They weren't looking for a sign. They were looking for another free meal. And it's at that point where Jesus begins to show them the deeper reality of what's going on here. Jesus blows their minds when he shows them what they need is not manna from heaven. In fact, what they need isn't physical bread at all. What they need is Jesus himself, who was, who is, the bread of life. Very literally, the bread that brings life. See, Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. And then he uses two words to show those crowds how they might receive this bread, right? He says this, come and believe. Look there again in verse 35. He says, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. See, to come to Jesus means to believe on him. And to believe on him means that we have to come to him. Believing is not merely an intellectual act where we give mental assent to some facts or some doctrine. It means to come to Christ and surrender yourself wholly to him. And the crowds miss this. They missed what Jesus was saying when he says, I'm the bread of life, come to me, believe on me. They missed it because they were still hung up on the idea that Jesus had claimed to be bread that came down from heaven. If you will, go ahead and skip over a few verses to verse 41. It says, Therefore the Jews started complaining about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? Right? Who is this guy to make that claim? Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said all these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Right? So there's there's a lot going on here. Jesus once again 
tries to lay it out for them. They start grumbling, said, hey, we know Jesus. We know his mama. We know his daddy. Uh, how can he say that he's come down from heaven? So Jesus says, all right, you're, you're missing it. He, what he tells them is, look, guys, who I am, what I'm offering is greater than the manna that came by Moses, right? Because they keep comparing Jesus to this manna that Moses provided in the wilderness. See, what Jesus wants them to understand is your ancestors ate manna, bread from heaven, and they still died. But what Jesus wanted them to see is that what he was offering would bring eternal life to all who received it. It was different. He wasn't talking about real physical bread. He was talking about something spiritual that brought eternal life. And then he illustrated the way that you receive the life that he's offering is by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, I get it. In our context, just as in theirs, That's kind of a weird way to put it. I get it. But let's just be clear. This is not not a call from Jesus to be a cannibal or a vampire. That's not what he's saying. The metaphorical meaning, the symbolic meaning of what Jesus is talking about here is fairly obvious if you just kind of will take your skeptic glasses off, right? Like, obviously, he's not saying, eat my flesh. Obviously, he's not saying, drink my literal blood. The meaning there, that it's metaphorical, that it's symbolic, is obvious, and at least it would have been to the Jews of that day. See, this language that Jesus was using, eat my flesh, drink my blood, is a language of receiving into oneself. It's very similar to the language of a covenant. See, back in Jesus' time, they they made covenants with one another that were much stronger than contracts. Covenants were bonds that could not be broken. And as they would make a covenant with one another, oftentimes, not all the time, oftentimes, they would take bread and feed it to each other in the ceiling of the covenant. And, And again, that was symbolic because they were saying, I am now a part of you. You are now a part of me. So this language that Jesus is using is all about, hey, if you want to be a part of me. If you want to receive the life that I offer, you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. What Jesus was saying is that by eating his flesh, drinking his blood, coming to him and believing on him are not just intellectual decisions. See, that's the point here. Jesus is saying it's not enough that you see miracles. It's not enough that you follow me around. It's not enough that you know who I am. You have to receive me in yourself. Believing on Jesus is not an intellectual decision. It's not a one foot in, one foot out kind of loyalty. But to come to Jesus, to believe on Jesus, is an internalization that changes the heart. That's what he was pushing after here. That's what he was getting after here. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood, means to receive him wholly. In fact, I think the text here goes so far as to make clear that the crowd understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew that he wasn't being literal, yet they rejected what he was saying. But if you'll look, the reason that they rejected Jesus was not because what he said was confusing, but because it was, verse 60 says, hard. This teaching is hard. Another translation is harsh. This teaching is harsh. 
Why? Because it left no room for half-hearted followers. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're either all in or all out. So what does that mean? Why is that I am statement so significant to us today? Well, see, like the crowd here in John chapter 6, many people in the American church have followed Jesus for two very wrong reasons. First, people have followed Jesus because his general public popularity and the acceptance and influence that Christianity brings is something they sought after. Like, I I get it. Christianity uh, is still the majority, at least nominally in America, but the influence and popularity of Christianity is waning. But let's not pretend that 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 is what has always been. In a large part of American history, up until the current times, being a Christian was a status symbol. Being a Christian meant that you were included in the national fabric. Being a Christian meant that you were more easily accepted and you had more influence in the public square. If you don't think that's true, look at John F. Kennedy and the, and the blowback on him because he was Catholic, not Protestant. Like This was a real thing, that to be American was to be Christian. And so there are some people who followed Jesus just for the tangible benefits of what being a Christian in America brought them. The second thing, and maybe more, uh, uh, more of a thing today because of the waning popularity of Christianity, is that some people follow Jesus because of the belief that if they did, he would bless them, bless them physically bless them financially, bless them relationally or whatever if they just checked all the right boxes. See, just like the crowd in John chapter 6, I think what Jesus would say to many of us today is you followed me because of what you wanted from me, not because you truly knew me. That's why I think this particular I am statement is so important. There are many today who think they are following Jesus, but really all they're trying to do is get something from Jesus, just like this crowd was trying to get a free meal. But they really, truly don't know him. If we were honest with ourselves today, I think we really have to ask that question. Do we want something from Jesus? Healing, prosperity, comfort, influence, peace, heaven, whatever. Do we want something from Jesus or do we simply want Jesus? Do we want him? I think if we get to that place of honesty, we may not like the answer to that question because a lot of us, maybe not all the time, but some of the time, maybe even most of the time, we're craving something from Jesus. We could care less about actually getting more of Jesus. See, and that's why I think the point here that we have to get is that just like with this crowd, for us today, Jesus is more concerned with what we need than what we want. Right? They wanted a meal Jesus used that to point them to what they really needed, a saving relationship with him that brought eternal life. Look, you and I, we may want a bunch of different things in life. And right now, many of us are chasing after those things. But Jesus wants us to see that those things you're chasing after are not what you need. 
They may be what you want, but they're not what you need. They may not be intrinsically bad or evil, but they are keeping you from chasing after the one thing that truly does matter. Jesus doesn't care what you want. He cares what you need. Just ask yourself, if you were today, before the end of the day, like right now, if this day you were to get everything in your life that you had been chasing after, what then? If you get that new job, what then? If you finally meet that perfect someone, what then? If your kid actually is one of the very few who get a scholarship to go play ball in college, what then? See, I think the truth is that even if we got everything that we're chasing after, we, we still wouldn't be satisfied because there's always something else, right? Once we get that new job, then we need a raise. Or once we meet that perfect someone, we've got to make sure that they make us happy. Or once our kid gets into college, well, maybe they'll go pro. See, if we got everything in life we were chasing after, I still think we wouldn't be satisfied. We would still want more. Why? Because everything without Jesus is still nothing. Why? Because it's like manna in the wilderness. The things that we're chasing after in this life only bring a temporary satisfaction at best. And that's what Jesus was trying to show the crowd. And I think that's what Jesus wants to show us today is that what we want isn't what we need. Because what we want will never do what we hope it will do. What we need is Jesus alone. Now maybe you're saying to yourself, I, I don't know, Chip. I'm pretty satisfied. I've got a good job, a good family. I have good times. I, I have a good life. Look, you, you very well may be feeling that right now. But what you have got to realize is all of that can change in a moment. It can all disappear in the blink of an eye. And there will probably be nothing you can do to stop it. That's a reality that one day we all have to deal with. That the things in life that we enjoy can very quickly, very suddenly, without anything we can do about it, be taken from us. And so when that happens and when it all comes crashing down, what are you left with then? What then? See, I think that's why this illustration of bread, physical bread and spiritual bread is so appropriate, right? Because when we feel physical hunger, that is a warning sign that our body gives us. Hey, if you don't eat, things aren't going to go well. If you don't eat, your body's going to not perform. If you don't eat, your mind's going to slow down. So we feel physical hunger to let us know, hey, you need to eat something or else things are going to go sideways. But all too often, by the time we realize that we are starving spiritually, it's just too late. Right? We've had all these good things in our lives that have placated us, that have numbed us, that have put us to sleep. And then suddenly, when they're all taken away, by then it's too late to realize what you were missing. Not that it's ever too late to come to Jesus, but it's too late to keep it all from crashing down because it's already happened. You see, prosperity 
can be used by the enemy to keep us from fully realizing the importance of the truth we're talking about today. The more that we have, the more we think we need. But if you will look throughout history and even around the world today, in the poorest parts of the world, those who seemingly have nothing remind us that Jesus is all they need. They don't need anything else because they have Jesus. So here's what I want to leave you with today. Jesus satisfies. He alone is the one who gives the satisfaction that life can't offer and death can't take away. When you are uh, in Jesus, when Jesus is in you, when you have that relationship with him, he brings a satisfaction that nothing in life can take away, nothing in death can take away. But the question I would ask you is, has seeking after other things, has seeking to get something from Jesus kept you from actually knowing Jesus. Maybe that's true for you today. And you're realizing for the first time that you've spent your entire life trying to get something from him. You don't actually know him. So today, what I'm asking you to do is to set aside all the other things in life that you're chasing. Maybe they're not bad things. And maybe you don't need to stop chasing them forever. But for today, right now, would you stop chasing them so that right now you can chase Jesus? Why? Because Jesus satisfies. Come to him for him. Believe on him for him. See him and find in him the true bread that your soul has been hungry for. Jesus satisfies. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for this time today to look to your word just as relevant to us now as when you first spoke those words. So God, I pray that today in this moment, many would see you as the bread of life. Many would see you as the satisfaction that their soul has been hungry for. And so they would come to you, they would believe on you, and they would find life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.